Hey guys, in today's episode, I'm going to be sitting down with Melissa Bauer. She is a great friend of mine from Atlanta. When I moved to Atlanta, I got a job as a patient care coordinator at an infertility clinic, and she was the nurse that I would be partnered with. And on the first day, I told her about my work with foster and adopted kids, and she said, I'm adopted out of foster care. And you know what? In that moment, I realized I need to give these kids that I work with a bit more credit because she was so well put together, a successful nurse. She lives in an affluent community in Atlanta. And I was like, wow, she has really done well for herself. And I realized that my assumptions about kids from these backgrounds is that they won't be that successful, which is really um, can be debilitating to the kids that I am so heavily advocating for. So, you know, Melissa has dealt with people judging her in that way or thinking, wow, you've really done great for a foster kid. And she's going to talk about her whole experience through foster care adoption, what it's meant for her as a mom today, what it was like reconnecting with her biological parents. She really hopes that her experience will reduce isolation for other adoptees while also giving a perspective to everyone else of what it's like to be a kid that is adopted out of state's custody. I know that you guys are going to love her as much as I do, and we will jump right in. Hi, I'm Rebecca Britt, and this is the Stable Moments Podcast, the show where we discuss all things related to the foster care system and early childhood trauma, from foster parents, trauma experts, former foster kids, and beyond. We'll take a deep dive into the complexities of the foster care crisis in an effort to better understand how to fix it. If you could start just by letting people know where you were born and what you knew about your life before you came into care. Um, so I was born in um, the San Fernando Valley in Los Angeles and um, my birth parents were pretty young. Um, they were married at the time. My, um, my birth mother had one child that she had already willingly adopted out and um, I was the second child. And she, they were married when they um, had me. And I think I was sort of like their um, chance of starting over. Um, But they both had um, drug problems. And my mom also um, struggled with mental illness, um, specifically with schizophrenia. So she definitely, um, and I guess like had a really hard time when I was about um, like one to two years old is when she started having like her like psychotic break. And um, I didn't know, like growing up, I knew I was adopted when I was four years old. So I got um, taken from their care at age two and got put in the foster system. And then was in a couple of different foster homes from ages two to four. And so when I was adopted, I knew that I was adopted. It was not a big reveal Um, and I knew that my um, story was complicated, which is what my parents told me, Um, but I didn't know the the specific details until I was a teenager. Yeah. So do you know um, now what the actual incident was that prompted you to come into care? Yes. So I didn't know that until I was, um, again, when I was 16, I was reunited with my biological brother who was three years younger than me and his mom was his foster mom and she ended up adopting him. 
And so she had all of this paperwork about like the whole time that we were in the system. And um, so on the, that paperwork was when I found out the story of how I came to care. And um, supposedly I had, um, I was about two years old and I had peed on the floor when my mom was changing my diaper and I slipped in the urine and I fell and I cracked my chin open. And so she took me to the hospital and um, while we were in the ER and I was getting stitches for my chin, um, I think the, um, the nurses and doctors just felt like it, they were suspicious for abuse and neglect. And so they reported um, the story, I guess, to the police. And then the police came and took me. Um, and, you know, my um, birth father was um, originally very, like combative and they, I guess he spins it as um, they told him that they, you know, they could see that he was, they were having a hard time and that I was just gonna be taken away for a couple of days to help them um, get their lives back in order. But then a couple of days turned into years and then, um, you know, they, I think they ended up actually willingly terminating their parental rights. Um, and then that's when I got adopted. Okay, so what was your experience in foster care like, or do you remember any of that, or have you found out about it later? Yeah, so um, it's funny because initially I didn't really, you know, I was pretty young, and I believe I was in three different foster homes in those two years. So, and one of them was like an all Spanish speaking foster home. So when I was like learning to talk, I was like, combining English and Spanish. So then they thought I was like slow because no one could understand me. Um, they'd make it to the English foster home. Um, so I don't remember like what it was like living in like that Spanish foster home um, or the one that was prior to that. But the, the last foster home that I was in um, for you know a good bit of time, um, I don't know exactly how long I was in there for, but that one I do, those are some of my earliest memories. Um, I wouldn't say, I feel like a lot of the effects of like being in a foster home is kind of more in subconscious, like non-tangible ways. Sure. Um, but my foster mother clearly, you know, cared for me um, because when I um, got adopted, she threw a going away party for me and made a photo album with, um, you know, me and the other foster kids and um, with her biological children. Um, and she also included photos of my birth mother from visits that we would have. And that was like the close, that was sort of like became my baby book. You know, I never mm -hmm. had like a traditional um, baby book from my parents. And so that was something that I always held on to. And it wasn't until I was an adult that I realized like what a gift that was that she gave me. So clearly she, um, you know, loved me and was caring and supportive. Um, I do remember, you know, feeling a little bit like a second class citizen um, as a foster child in her home. I remember on um, like one night for dinner having like a taco night and like her biological kids would always get to make their plates before the foster kids. Now, I don't know if that's because they were just older or and we were younger or what, but I remember feeling feeling like hypersensitive to that. Mm. Um, and then I also remember like for our snacks, we always got like Cheerios, like little cups of Cheerios. 
And I remember there being like several times where, you know, I was hungry and I wanted something more than just Cheerios. And, um, and it was like, that's what you get is Cheerios, you know? And I remember feeling a little bit like her biological children got more like free reign and privileges um, than we did. Um, and then I also remember her um, trying to get us to um, like nap a lot. Um, and I remember her saying like, you know, you guys all need to be laying down sleeping because like a prospective um, adoptive parent is going to be coming to the house to look at, I mean, I guess like choose a child or whatever. And so it was like this sort of like grooming of you need to, you know, be on your best behavior and children are seen, not heard kind of thing, you know? And I remember like laying there, like popping open an eye, like, are you going to pick me? You know, kind of thing. Was that true? Were, were people showing up at her house to... I do remember. I don't know if it was a social worker in hindsight, but I do remember people coming to her house. Um, and then I also have pictures of my adopted parents and me and my brother, my adopted brother at her house and like pictures of like my social worker at her house as well interesting and what a weird it, it's like yeah kids pick that stuff up and and you wonder or I have to wonder if you know the stipend that she's given if she was trying not to go over kind of the stipend like I can afford Cheerios for the foster kids and right um I want to make sure my kids get fed first uh, yeah. the stipend like, only covers this yeah month. right it, I mean there's so much that I'm sure there was more to it, but like when you're just a little kid and you don't understand the full picture, I, it's easy to internalize it, you know, and think like I'm less than somehow, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And naps are hard for any kid. Yeah, exactly. It's interesting because now, you know, I'm a mother and I have um, two children that are biological, my own children. And so there's so many things that I thought were like hangups from my adoption um, and, you know, being a foster kid. But now I realize they're just kind of normal stuff that I probably would have experienced anyways. Um, now that I see my kids, you know, kind of freak out because, you know, they don't want Cheerios for a snack. They want something else. And it's like, at the moment, this is what's easiest for me to give you, you know? Um, and that could have been the same thing for her. But. Yeah, absolutely. Although it is a huge burden to put, like, I can't imagine you sitting there hoping to get picked. Like, yes, having the security of like, at least I know where I belong and who my right. parents are yes. is, is huge. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Yeah, I definitely did not have that. I don't really remember um, visits with my birth parents. Um, I did have them. Um, but they're not really concrete memories. I do remember visits with my adopted parents before they adopted me. Um, and I remember like going to lunch with them and they bought me milk, like chocolate milk or something. And I was like, so excited. Like it felt like Christmas day because I got to have something other than just water. Um, and you know, those kind of little things just felt like, um, I got adopted right before, um, Christmas. I think it was like maybe a few weeks before Christmas and um, the, my foster family were Jehovah's Witness. So they didn't celebrate any holidays. And um, I remember my first Christmas with my adopted family and like seeing all the presents and 
and, you know, my mom was like a Christmas fanatic. And so she decorated the house to the nines. And, you know, I, I, I walked in and I was like, is this all for me? Like, it was <laughs> like such a surreal, amazing moment. Um, so. Interesting. So tell me about your adoptive parents, what they're like. And um, those are who you refer to now as mom and dad. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, they, they passed away. Um, my dad passed away 10 years ago now and my mom nine years ago. Um, but they were great people. They were normal people. You know, I think a lot of times um, when you're a kid growing up, you know, you think your parents are the worst. And then when you get older, you tend to sanctify them a little bit. Um, but looking back, you know, they just were um, normal, um, good people. They definitely provided um, a loving, secure home for me. Um, I do think that um, I had an easier time, like, having a secure attachment with my dad than I did with my mom. Um, and I think a lot of that was just based on their personalities. Mm -hmm. My dad was or like affectionate and um he was a quiet guy but like when he talked it was like meaningful and it's easier to connect with him whereas my mom was just kind of more like surfacey um and I just always felt like she didn't really understand um like my struggles and you know kind of who I was um at the time and so um I did definitely have anxious attachment with both of them, even though it was more secure with my dad. But overall, um, I felt I was always like sort of preoccupied with them dying because they were older. And mm. I remember being like, you know, in the backseat of my dad's car and being like, are you going to die soon? Like literally asking that. Wow. Um, and so, you know, and they would just kind of laugh it off and just be like, not yet. But um, in hindsight, it probably should have been a clue that <laughs> I was, you know, struggling to feel secure with them. So, but they provided like a stable home, um, you know, in terms of we didn't move around a lot and, um, you know, they, they were married and, um, now you did end up in, in Conyers, right? Or yes. how did you get yeah. from California to Georgia? Yeah. So my, um, the Northridge earthquake happened in 1994 and my mom, um, got, she worked for the VA hospital and, the building went down during the earthquake. And so um, she had a choice to either like work at a different VA in California, which she hated that VA, um, or uh, move to either New Mexico or Georgia. And at the time my dad was out of a job, um, there was like a big layoff in the retail world. My dad was a visual merchandiser for JCPenney and um, he was having a really hard time finding a job. And so, they, the chances of him finding a job were greater in Georgia than in New Mexico. So um, when I was in seventh grade, it's when we moved to Georgia. Okay, if you could like look back now as an adult and your adoptive mom was this person that was just like the ideal therapeutic parent or your adoptive dad was the ideal therapeutic parent, what do you think you needed most as a kid? I think I probably needed reassurance most as a kid. And I think also like trust, you know, I didn't feel like I had um, like secure trust that things were going to stay, you know, or be permanent. 
Um, and they were unaware of that insecurity or yeah. that you were thinking those things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I didn't know how to like vocalize it. And I honestly don't think that they knew that that was a problem, you know? Sure, back I, then, I mean, there was nothing out about how to be a therapeutic foster parent or adoptive no. parent. Yeah, people didn't Google things back then. And right. there was no, um, it was just completely different. And I think, you know, a lot of stuff, you know, especially now being on the flip side and being a mom, I see a lot of things. Um, like I remember when I first got adopted, I would have these terrible nightmares and, you know, would I, I would want to go sleep with my parents in the beginning, they would let me. And then after a while, it was like, make a bed on the floor because, you know, they wanted to sleep and they were tired. And, you know, as a little girl, that was devastating, you know, to be like, having gone through what I went through and now I have to like sleep on the floor um, by my parents because I felt, I internalized that like, well, they don't love me enough to like mm -hmm. let me sleep with them, you know. But, but now that I'm a parent, it's <laughs> like, I want my sleep, you know what I mean? Like, it's frustrating when it's night after night, you know, it's like, okay, like, I don't know what else to do to like make you feel secure, you know? Yeah, so what did it mean to be adopted growing up? Like, how did you interact with your peers or at school? Like, did you feel like you were different because you were adopted? So yeah, it's funny because I never felt like I was different being adopted. Like it felt like I was completely like a part of, you know, the Devlin family. Like I'd never like, it just felt like those are my parents and this is my family, just like everybody else. Um, and I didn't feel weird about it until um, I started getting probably like middle school. And um, that was when we moved to Georgia. And, you know, I would introduce people to, be, to my parents and they were like, that's your parents? Like, they don't look like you, you know? And then it was like, oh, well, I was adopted, you know? And they were like, oh. Um, so then it started making me feel different um, because nobody you know i didn't know anybody else that was adopted and all of these people didn't know anybody else that was adopted with the exception of like you know the extreme bad stories that you would hear about you know right. and so i think a lot of times um you know especially like as i got older then it started just becoming like part of my story you'd be like these are my parents like i was adopted and um and it was like kind of the same thing for my parents too especially with my mom um, where that, you know, when she would in introduce me, like, this is my daughter and, and immediately they would be like, oh, she must look like your husband, you know? And then my mom would be like, oh, she was adopted. Both of my kids are adopted. And she was always like super open about the story. And people were always like, wow, that's cool. You know, like, yeah, you, um, whereas like for me, like, it just made me, it just highlighted like, oh, like, you know, this is different. And it was other people's reactions that made me. Um, I guess feel not necessarily insecure about it, but um, I guess just different about it. And then especially like as I got older and people would, you know, be like, oh, well, you know, I picture like foster kids as being like these feral humans, <laughs> you know, um, or like people with like these deep wounds mm -hmm. and, um, you know, but you, you know, you're doing great and like, you know, you, um, you know, you, you must have had really good parents. And, but it would make me feel weird when they would say that because it was like, I felt like I had these deep wounds that people couldn't see, you know? Mm. Um, and so, 
you know, that and was people hard. are And people are like acknowledging them. So like now you've mm-hmm. said, you know, I, we all, a lot of us walk around with deep wounds, but we mm-hmm. never have to say anything that would make mm-hmm. somebody assume that we have those. And so right. to say like, oh, I'm actually, I'm adopted or whenever you need to like expose that and mm-hmm. people assume, oh, oh, okay. Like, you know, and they're like, she must have trauma or she must have these deep wounds. Now you're seen through that lens. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like, that's your, that's like some big stuff. Like that's stuff you don't even talk to your inner circle or you yourself had possibly are working through still. And to kind of be in a situation where adoption is brought up and now you're like exposed. Yeah. Um, I, I can only imagine. Yeah. And I don't think at the time too, I even knew like what those wounds were, you know what I mean? It's not like I was like, a kid and was like, I have trouble feeling secure, you right. know, right. Like, I have trouble trusting people. Like I didn't realize that, you know, and it wasn't until after my dad died, um, that I like completely fell apart and, um, you know, went to therapy and, um, realized that, you know, they always in psychology, they talk about like the good enough parent mm-hmm. and, um, which is the one that like meets your needs mm-hmm. and that he was like my good enough parent. And so um, when he died, it was really challenging. Yeah. And like, that was your childhood fear. Yeah. And he, um, he was sick for a long time before he died. And there was a lot of like close calls. And um, I remember every time, you know, I would just pray incessantly, like, you know, please don't let this be it, you know, um, I'm not ready to say goodbye. Mm. And so, um, I remember, um, with my first like serious boyfriend, always like being afraid that he was going to leave me. And that was like my first clue that I was like, okay, I have some abandonment problems, but, um, I didn't realize like, how far reaching they were until my dad died. Mm-hmm. And you lost both your parents. Yeah, in a year and a half. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. crazy. Yeah. And you already had, you had your husband at that point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you had met John. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, I was definitely grateful that, you know, it, it was hard on our marriage because I didn't know how to like I think anytime you're with someone that you love who's grieving that's hard you know yeah. hard to support he didn't know how to support me and I don't think he really understood because it it was like beyond a normal grieving of like losing your parents you know well and like you possibly didn't understand right yeah. like all of a sudden mm-hmm. you're realizing like this is deeper for me and oh there are some patterns that are right. probably pretty obvious that I've had some right. um, attachment and abandonment issues and like and then mm-hmm. on top of it the grief and then your husband trying to understand so when you were in your when you were you know in your teens or growing up Mm-hmm. Did you wonder about your bio parents? Did you yes. talk to your always, about them? Yeah, I always wondered about them. And I, I think part of my situation that was unique was that my adopted brother always knew his birth mom. 
And I remember like my dad and I staying back at the house when my mom and my brother like went to go see his birth mom when he was probably like 15 or 16 years old. Mm. And I remember being like, well, why can't I go see my birth mom? You know, and my parents would always just say like, well, your situation was complicated. And like, which I think was an appropriate response because I was a kid, but at the same time, like not having that knowledge, you know, was like, well, why is it complicated? And, you know, I wanted, you know, I felt like I'm like my brother, like he was adopted too. You know what I mean? Like, I don't understand, like, how come he can have a relationship with his mom, but I can't kind of thing. So, um, they always told me that I had to wait until I was 16 and when I was 16, that they would um, help me find my mom if I still wanted to. Wow. Um, and so, well, sure enough, I turned 16 and I was like, you know, I had no photos um, of my dad, um, but I did have those like three photos of my mom from our visits um, from when I was in foster care from the foster mother. And so I would look at them all the time and, you know, just like searching her face for my face, like you know, um, it was really important to me. Mm -hmm. And, um, so when I was 16, you know, it was not like this big secret. I never really felt like I had to worry about hurting my parents' feelings, mm -hmm. um, about asking to look for them. Um, also when I was nine years old, my mom had told me, you know, you have a biological brother and we're going to go meet him. And so we, I met my biological brother when I was nine and he was six. And, um, and that was a cool experience. And we were like really close for a long period of time. And we would like talk on the phone and which is kind of cute, you know, being a little kid. Yeah. And really um, nice for your mom and dad to facilitate <laughs> that. Yeah. I don't remember my dad really being a part of it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm sure he supported my mom in it. Sure. Um, and so that was cool. And I remember like, you know, my brother calling me and my mom being like, oh, you know, Jonathan's on the phone, your biological brother, and, you know, feeling like special that I had this relationship um, with him. But he was raised, he was adopted by a Jehovah's Witness family. And um, so we were all kind of raised completely different by the families that we were adopted into. Mm -hmm. And I think that ended up um, hurting our relationship with each other because as we got older it was harder to relate to one another because mm. um, our upbringings were pretty different but um when I was 16 so we were close you know when I was young when I was nine and then we moved to Georgia when I was 12 and then we lost contact and then until I was 16 and so I told my mom you know that I wanted her to help me find him and but I always had this like sense of um searching you know, and I don't know if that's just innate to who I am or if that is um, because I was adopted um, or a combination of two, but I always felt like I wanted to know like my past. Um, it was really important to me. So my mom helped me find my brother through like a uh, Yahoo search um, and we found him pretty quickly. And um, we, that was like super exciting. And we had a really good, you know, kind of like picked up where we left off and, um, and had a, you know, we talked all the time. And this was like during the era of like AOL instant messenger. And mm -hmm. he was like really like computer tech savvy. And he like taught me um, all that kind of stuff. And um, so we talked a lot. And then that summer, so um, between like 16 and 17, 
I went out to stay with him and it was supposed to only be for a couple of days and he was still in California, but not um, Los Angeles. So is he on his own now or? No, he's still with his adopted family. Okay. Mm-hmm. How many so years his, in between you two? We're three years apart. Okay. So yeah. you're 16 and his, he's 19 or something? No, he's younger. He oh. was 13. Oh, okay. You're mm-hmm. 16 and he's 13 and you go out mm-hmm. to visit them in California. Mm-hmm. And he got adopted, like his um, adopted mom was his foster mom. So she's the one that had, so when I was 16 and I went out there to stay with him, you know, she's the one that showed me like all the paperwork. And that's where I learned so much about my adoption because before I didn't have any of that information. So it definitely helped like fill in the pieces. It was definitely very like sobering to read um, about yourself in third person, you know, and be like this like clinical like child, you know, and see like evaluations from like play therapists and from social workers and um, just so like black and white you know, type stuff. So it was kind of hard to read it, but at the same time it was um, like healing, you know, because it answered a lot of questions for me. Um, But that visit with him was only supposed to be a couple of days, but uh, my dad like accidentally booked it for like two weeks. (laughs) Um, And so um, I got really homesick um, when I was out there. And I think that was the first time that I really learned that like home is more and like family is more than just genetics, Mm. you know? Um, And that's when I realized that like my home and my family was with my adopted family, you know? And that even though he was like, you know, we had a good relationship and, you know, we were like buddies, you know, he didn't feel like home. And um, I would call, you know, by the end of it, I was like, call my mom crying. Like, I just want to come home, you know? And um, at the end of the visit, I was like running onto the plane. Mm. So did you come home and say, now I have all this information and I... Yeah, I never talked about like the paperwork with my parents. I don't know why. I think I just kind of felt like it was like a, I think I felt ashamed of it sort of, honestly. I just like tucked it away, you know, and um, was just like wanted to just reintegrate with like the life that I knew. Right, right. You Not know, upon. Mm-hmm. and yeah. so um, yeah, so I didn't really talk about it. I still did want to search for my birth mom um, because I wanted to know. I just wanted to find her and see what she was like. I definitely had like a fantasy of what my of what she was like um like big time and um I think like when you're a teenager you know you go through the teenage angst and you hate your parents and you hate your life and you have this sort of privilege when you're adopted to be like well my other life could have been better Mm. you know what I mean like my because there is this other family that is out there that you could have been raised with and had a totally different life you know um And so I really, you know, fantasized and romanticized what my birth mom would have been like. And so I was doing like Yahoo searches, like not really with my mom. I was doing this more by myself. Um, And I would write these letters and I would send them to her and they all would get returned back, you know, like returned to sender. And that was really depressing. So I just kind of put it on hold. And then it wasn't until a few years later. So I was in my early 20s. Now, um, I had like finished college. Oh no, I think I was still in college. Um, and my boyfriend at the time had this friend who was a skip tracer 
and we were all hanging out and he was like, oh yeah, I can find anybody. And I was like, oh. What's I'll a skip tracer? A skip tracer. It's like, it's like shady, but basically um, <laughs> he like searches for people who are, aren't paying their like car loans and they're the ones that like find them and then like they come and repossess like your possessions. Okay. Yeah. So it's like people trying to like skip out on like paying stuff. Sure. You know? Okay. Um, so, and like, if you knew this guy too, it's, I don't even remember his name now, but he was like totally like a shady character. Like they were all druggies and it's just funny. And I'm like, that was his job. So he's like bragging about how he can find everybody. And it was like literally like, um, on a whim. And I was like, well, maybe you can find my birth father. And I hadn't really like thought a lot about my birth father growing up. Um, because I didn't, the photos that I had were of me and my mom. And mm-hmm. so I think I like painted this story of like him not caring or just not being in the picture when really he was. Um, and actually it's funny cause like when I look back at that photo album that my foster mother made me, there was a spot where it said like Anne and Carl, um, a picture of both of them, but it fell out of the photo album. Oh. Um, it must, you know, during the transition. And so I never saw it. Um, so, but I had his information from that paperwork that I got from my birth brother. And, um, so I like gave it to him and literally like in two hours, he was like, he was like, Oh my God, like I talked to your dad and he's like sobbing. He like, he can't wait to talk to you. Like, you know, he's like, are you ready? And I was like, Oh my God, like freaking out. You know, I was like, okay, I guess. Um, and so I called my dad and like, it was really surreal, um, because I went from thinking that he was not, you know, in my life and didn't care about me to this man who was like, so like, never forgot about me for a second, like had my name tattooed, like on his chest, like, you know, just was like, I, the first thing he said to me was like, I've been waiting for this call, like your whole life, you know? Um, so that was really amazing to go from like, you know, I wasn't wanted and like feeling really insecure to feeling like, well, I was wanted, you know? Um, so that was, yeah. It was so where was he? Was he close? He was still in California. Um, he was in San Francisco. And um, so he had moved out there after like he and my mom split and he never got remarried and he never had more children. Um, but his drug addiction did spiral pretty badly. Um, he was a heroin addict and was like in and out of prison for a really long time. Um, but when I had found him, he had been sober for quite a few years and he actually contracted hepatitis C, Hmm. um, from needle use. And so he was like in the midst of doing treatment and like recovery for the hepatitis C. Yeah. And I hear that's a pretty intensive treatment. Yeah. He was really sick. Like he was so skinny when I first met him. Um, but it was kind of like perfect timing, um, that I did find him when I did because he was in a good place. You know, I think it would have been hard if not in a good place physically, but like in a good place, like healthy, you know, um, not using and yeah, um, because I could imagine if you reached out while he was using that you could, he could try to use you for oh man, yeah. money or... Totally, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and the reason why they had, like, moved me in the different foster homes was because he kept, like, threatening to, like, snatch me um, because he just felt so wronged by the system, you know? Um, and, like, he definitely had the mentality that, like, they took his kid away versus, like 
you know, him like contributing to it. You know what I mean? Like you weren't fit to raise this kid. Sure. So did he tell you about your mom or? Yeah. So he filled in like all the blanks of, um, you know, of like their relationship and um, was, he was able to tell me everything, you know, like how they met and the regret that he carried and the hurt that he carried with like how everything went down. And um, yeah. And like, it was neat um, when I did meet him in person, it was really like surreal, you know, but, and I think for him, it was even more surreal because he was like, gosh, like, you know, you look so much like your mom and, I think it sort of like brought her back to life for him, you know, like mannerisms and those kinds of things, which I didn't even realize were inherited things, you know, like the way you walk or the way you talk or, you know, moving with your hands and all those kinds of things um, are inherited, you know? Um, So, you know, in the beginning it was really wonderful because, you know, my adoptive parents were still alive. Now I had this birth father, Um, that was part of my life and I felt more like complete, you know? Um, but my relationship with him became strained after, um, my dad died because then he, I felt like he tried to fill that role. Mm. And, um, I think he just, I mean, he had, you know, obviously it was traumatizing for me, you know, being taken away from him, but it was obviously very traumatizing for him as well. And he never really worked through it. You know, it was more like, um, you know, he numbed it with drugs and then, you know, he became sober and then I was back in his life. And I was like, okay, well now I'm back. And like, you know, thanks for watching Melissa for all these years, mm-hmm. you know, like they were like a babysitter, you know, but I'm back now and, you know, here's your money <laughs> kind of thing. Sure. And um, so it was like, I, you know, it doesn't work that way. And even though like, there was a place for him in my life and I cared about him deeply. Um, it wasn't necessarily like a father type role, you Mm. know what I mean? And, um, and I felt very like loyal towards my adopted dad and especially when he died, um, you know, I felt like fiercely loyal and like, you know, kind of like a, how dare you, you know, like you don't get to take credit for the way I turned out because it wasn't your nurturing. You know what I mean? Like you can did take you have credit. those conversations with him. Yeah, I did. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were hard, hard conversations. You know, I think they made him angry. What do you yeah. say to that? You know, it's just like, there was no resolution towards it, you know? Um, and I felt like I would constantly say like, you know, I would set a boundary and, you know, I, you know, I remember like getting to a point where I was like, I don't even want you to like introduce yourself to me or talk to me as like dad, you know, like I was like, I, you know, we can call you CW or like, you know, Carl or whatever, but like, I don't, or we can call you like bio dad, but like just dad, like doesn't sit with me, sit well with me. And um, he would be like, okay. And then it was like, you know, a couple hours later, he'd be like, you know, here, daddy, your dad wants to know, da, 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 you know, like in a joking way. And it would piss me off, you know, so it's like, you're not respecting my boundary. Mm. But I think he just didn't know how, you know, it just was too hard for him Yeah. Um, to accept, you know, and embrace that he didn't raise me, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So he never really wanted to, because acknowledging that would 
mean that he would have to acknowledge that he had something to do with the fact that you were removed. So when did you um, contact the TV show to try to find your mom? Like at what, what point of your relationship with, with Carl? It was probably like maybe two years into the relationship with him. Um, Cause he would always talk about, you know, how he felt a lot of guilt um, for leaving her and, you know, he wondered how she was doing. And so um, John and I used to watch that show, The Locator on WeTV and it was more John than me where he was like, you have to like submit your story. I felt like he pushed it more of like wanting to find her. So the locator host, his name is Troy Dunn and his mom was adopted. And that's what started him on like doing this TV show and reuniting families. And his mom is the one that called me um, to tell me that it was too depressing for TV. Um, But she told me, you know, if you, if you do decide to meet her, She's like, just don't go like by yourself, you know? Um, so after, so then, but she gave me her phone number and I talked so to her. So what was, why was that? Like what, what made it too depressing and why shouldn't you? Go I guess because of like her mental state, um, you know, because she was like almost like a, like a talking to like a three-year-old kid or something, you know, oh. she was like on all these meds and, um, you know, she was like living in a trailer with like all these people and they had all these dogs and it just was not like a happy situation, you know? Um, and she just was very, yeah, like talking like a three-year-old, you know, just out of it. So, um, but I did talk to her on the phone and, um, be careful what you ask for because it was an okay conversation um, she definitely remembered a lot of things about me um, as a baby, and um, and that was neat and sort of validating um, to hear. Uh, but she definitely was, you know, at first I got my hopes up, you know, I was like, oh, wow, you know, this is amazing. And she was like, um, do you want me to call you the next day? Um, you know, would that make you feel good? And I was like, yeah, I would love that. And then she never did. And then that, like, and then, like, how how life works out, you know, why it does the way it does, I don't know. But, you know, that that next day, when I was, like, waiting for her to call me, was when um, my adopted mom called me to tell me that my dad was in the hospital, and then he died um, that next day. So it was, like, everything changed, you know. Um, And I talked to her a few times. She did call me, you know, not, like, the next day like she promised, but, you know, however long later. And I would talk to her a few times, but every time I talked to her, it just upset me. And I was like, I'm not going to get out of this relationship what I'm looking for. You know what I mean? And I was like, I don't even know what I'm looking for at this point. <laughs> um, right. It was like, I had just been looking for her for so long. Um, and then it was like, okay, now I found her and she did not live up to the fantasy of, you know, what I envisioned. And so um, I ended up having to block her number because she would call me so much. Wow. But yeah, and so, you know, throughout the whole journey of finding my birth parents, I remember thinking, you know, I wish that I had other adoptees that I could, like, be in a support group with that had gone on this journey because it felt super lonely, you know. Um, People would listen and, you know, empathize as much as they could, but nobody could really relate, you know. And even the the closest person that could relate was my adopted brother, but, like, his situation, like, he always knew who his mom was, you know what I mean? Like, he never had to, like, go on this journey of finding 
these different people. And then when you do find them, I just never really thought about like how my life would change once I found them and that they might not be what I was hoping that they would be like, you know what I mean? Mm. Yeah. And there's a lot of people too that have no clue. Um, you know, they have no clue where they came from Mm -hmm. or they talk about like, they don't know their background enough to even check off like what yeah yeah well and that's how I felt too and now you know once I did find out you know especially with like her being schizophrenic I was like I liked it better when I didn't know you know because like now this is something that I worry about like for my kids you know like is this something that they're gonna inherit you know I hope not um but that feels scary you know um and it made me even question like should I have kids you know it's like um and, you know, it definitely plagued me, you know, a lot in whether or not I should have kids. And then, you know, when I did become a mother, you know, just feeling so inadequate at it, which I know now realize that that's pretty normal um, mm-hmm. talking with other moms. But like, in my mind, I was like, well, clearly I'm like lacking some gene and like how to be a good mom because mm. my mom couldn't mother me. You know what I mean? And I was like, I shouldn't have had kids. Now I know that like, you know, um, like cancers and all these things that are in my medical history where I'm like, oh, I liked it better when I could just check off. I don't know. Well, and what were like, because I know you as a mom and I know that you're a great mom. So what were some of the things as a mom that you felt super inadequate about? When I had my daughter, it just was very jarring of like, holy shit, you know, like, this is really hard. Like I didn't expect like babies to cry as much as they did. And like, um, for feeding them like basic things that should be simple. I thought, you know, to be hard. Like, I think I just wasn't shocked that I was even having a kid. I just didn't research anything. And, um, (laughs) I didn't know how to use my breast pump and I just was struggling, you know? And, um, John had just started a new job. Um, and it was like, um, I felt alone, you know, I was by, and my parents were dead and, you know, I had nobody there that was like, and I remember you like texted me, um, a couple of days after I was home from the hospital and you were like, um, why don't I see any pictures of Lily on Instagram? And I was like, cause I'm having a really hard time. <laughs> You're like, it ain't pretty. Yeah. I was like, this is hard. Like, I was like, this is like crazy. Like it just was very jarring uh, how like basic things you know and just the sleep deprivation and um you know and even a text from a friend like that it's like oh my gosh you're right other mothers freaking have these like beautiful pictures of like their whole family in this like pink and muslin and like exactly yeah right yeah I remember when I did I remember after you sent me that picture I think I put one up that day and I was like we've been home for a few days now and it you know it's an adjustment but I love her so much you know like that was all I could write you know and maybe I'll love her one day yeah and she's like still in her like <laughs> hospital like onesies <laughs> like I hadn't even like washed any clothes <laughs> like no cute pink muslin <laughs> it was like literally the hospital blankets were what she was swaddled in you know Um, it just took me a while. I think also too, um, I had like postpartum anxiety, you know, Mm. because I would worry a lot, you know, it wasn't like severe enough where I needed medication or 
anything like that. But I think, you know, the sleep deprivation mixed with like, you know, just kind of feeling inadequate. Um, well, I know even just in general, like it's weird that how that postpartum anxiety plays. And I don't know if it's like for survival to help you like make sure you're young or okay, or if it's like innate, but mm-hmm. I was like, I would tell Travis when I first had Phoenix, I was like, I like think I'm going to go find him dead. Like, I'm like, my brain says like, he's probably slumped over in his crib right now. And he's, I'm going to walk in there. And my brain has already showed me like my baby blue. Yes. Yeah. I think the sleep, the sleep deprivation has a lot to do with it though. Um, mm. But yes, I would like see, I remember like, you know, walking down the stairs, holding her and I would see this whole image of like me, like falling down the stairs and like her, like falling out of my arms and dying. Like you can see the whole thing in your mind and you're like, what? Like, that's crazy, you know? Um, yeah. But, you know, it just was like very, once I started like getting a little bit more sleep, you know, that got a lot more manageable. But um, I just didn't expect, you know, like everybody talks about and like, you know, the blissfulness of motherhood. And I think working in infertility, you know, as a nurse for so long. And that's also one thing I wanted to say as well working as an infertility nurse made me feel differently about being adopted because I would see these couples spend thousands of dollars, like, you know, making themselves broke because that's how badly they wanted their biological child, you know, and that made me feel like less than, you know, because mm-hmm. I was like, wow, like, why don't they, they just adopt, you know? And then I had a patient say to me one time who ended up adopting after spending thousands of dollars because it didn't work. And she adopted from a private agency, a baby. And she said, and she didn't know my story, uh, but she was like, yeah, I, I didn't want to adopt. I don't want, I don't want a foster kid because I don't, you know, want their problems. And mm-hmm. I remember being like, ouch, you know? <laughs> like, um, but I think in a lot of ways, people, are mistaken in thinking like their genes are going to create some perfect child you know it's like you don't get to choose your child regardless you don't know what kind of issues they're going to have whether you adopt them from the system you adopt them privately you have them biologically you know it's always going to be a mixed bag of good traits bad traits you know Um, I guess it's I guess for some people it's like if it's my genes that made that problem, it makes it easier. Yeah. So do you feel like a lot of your anxiety that you have today or that you have in being a mother, do you think it comes from a place of like, I just keep seeing this little girl that's laying on the floor that hopes she's good enough to get chosen um, by prospective adoptive parents and like Mm -hmm. this feeling of needing to be good enough. Yeah, I definitely think so. I think a lot of it comes from that. Yeah, like if, and just wanting, you know, I read something about, um, like, you know, self-help book about being adopted. And it talks about control and how every adopted child, like inherently right out the gate, lost control because this huge part of your life, you know, um, was taken away from you. You know, you did not have any say in it at all you know? And so I think I sort of coped with that loss of control with trying to be good enough or trying to be perfect. Well, and it's interesting you bring up this perfectionism that you feel like 
And it, it, it was a coping mechanism for you and, and a defense mechanism to be like, I'm going to be a perfectionist so that I'm, I'm good enough. And it's really interesting how our defense mechanisms and coping mechanisms, which we need to work through and kind of heal at some point, it's like those really served us and continue to serve us in a lot of ways. It's why you are a successful nurse. It's why you live the life that you do, why you know, why you have a beautiful home and a beautiful family and that you did kind of come, you know, you never tried drugs. There's just so many things about your story that could have taken another right. way. And being mm -hmm. a perfectionist served you mm -hmm. so well, but also is the creator of this anxiety mm -hmm. of not being good enough. So it's totally about it's not like you can say like if totally. I could just lose this perfectionism, I'd be better because you really do need to acknowledge great things that came out of that. Exactly. Yeah. So we had touched on this a little bit um, the other day when we spoke, and I just wanted to bring it up because I thought your answer then was really important. But you totally present as, you know, you live in an affluent area of um, an Atlanta suburb. You, when I first saw you, I thought like, oh man, I need to give these uh, kids that I advocate more for more credit because of how put together you are. Um, mm -hmm. But so that's something that you've had to deal with throughout your adult life is how people react to you when you tell them that you are adopted out of foster care. What, what mm -hmm. is their reactions and how does that make you feel? Well, yeah, so um, we had talked about that a little bit. And um, recently, I had looked into like donating some old baby things to um, a foster home um, to use for other foster children. But then recently, when I went on that foster um, website to donate the baby things, I you know saw their slogan on there, and it said like "Give a child a chance," and it made me feel shitty about myself. You know, like I was like this. Um, like lost puppy that was like needy for a chance you know i don't know it just felt like dehumanizing sort of mm. um and it just made me realize again about like how we sanctify children and parenthood um i think everybody deserves a chance you know and i think foster care is good. And I think it's wonderful that there are people that want to help. Um, but I don't know, I just felt like there's a little bit too much branding on um, what foster children look like and should be like. No, and I'll, I'll even say as a social worker, I'm totally guilty of this. I realized that when I first met you and I also like I feel like I need to, it's my purpose and calling to go out there and help people understand trauma so that they can react to these children appropriately and really give them the chance that they, you know, that you can foster connection and that you help their attachment and all this. But in that, I'm really labeling that like all these kids need these therapeutic connecting homes. And you know what, for my cousin that was adopted out of foster care and had reactive attachment disorder. The best thing for him was military school and he's a Marine to this day and he's over in Japan being a Marine. And I don't know what would have come of that kid if he didn't have 
the structure that the military gave him, like it was easy for him. Like you do this, this, and this, you're good. And he was like, I wanted that structure. Whereas I would never tell a parent, oh, therapeutic, to be a therapeutic parent, you need to be militant. Like that goes against everything. So like your story really just makes me realize how individualized every person, every kid, every trauma. There was a dad the other day that was talking to me about um, their kid came into their home. The father had, or the stepfather had perpetrated on the daughter. So he had sexually abused the daughter, but the son in that home was actually treated like kind of a king throughout his whole years. Cause the boys were seen as better and the girls were seen as, you know, these sexual objects. And so the boy came into foster care. He didn't have any trauma per se. He was just like, okay, my dad was shitty to my, to my sister. And so it's not going to be this blanket, like um, trauma informed care that you give that kid. And I think it's really important, even for all of my trainings I give for people to realize like, okay, it's a person and like you need to do what works for your kid. Mm -hmm, Definitely. Yeah, for sure. I think that, um, yeah, I mean, I agree with all of that entirely. And I just think that there's a lot of um, pressure to, especially, you know, being a foster parent or an adopted parent for a kid out of foster care to be this perfect parent. And I think that um, you've taught me a lot when we work together um, how you would always say it's all about the repair, you know, and I realized that with my childhood that that was something that my dad did really well, you know, and that's probably why I felt more connected and closer with him than my mom um, because, you know, he would blow up and get mad at me or whatnot. And then he would always come and sit down and talk to me afterwards and be like, and that was something that he learned from AA because he was a former alcoholic before I was ever in the picture. Um, but he would just apologize, you know, and not make it about me, you know, and then I like realized. And so um, when I became a parent myself, of course, I still thought, well, I'm not going to do that. Like, I'm going to be this great, you know, patient, kind Mary Poppins of a mother. Um, and then I still like lose my cool and blow up. And then but I always remember that piece about the repair, you know, and yeah, you can't like, you can't try to figure out all your kids triggers. Mm-hmm. You can't be a perfect parent. You no. can't be therapeutic all the time. And just you sitting do. with them in like their feelings, you know, I think also like, um, not always feeling like you have to fix somebody or something. And I think that's the thing that makes me feel shameful about being labeled a foster kid is feeling like something like I'm broken and I'm something that needs to be fixed, you know? Mm -hmm. And whereas like I'm a person with feelings and some feelings are not great and some things are, um, you know, not necessarily like healthy coping mechanisms, but like just embracing it and like sitting with me on that versus like, well, let's fix this, you know? And like, um, make it go away. Whereas like, if you just are embrace it and be like, acknowledge, like, this is hard, you know, and like, what you went through was traumatizing and hard. And, you know, what somebody else went through that maybe was a different experience was traumatizing and hard for them too, you know, and like, that's okay. And we're just going to sit there with that, you know, we don't have to try to fix it. Mm hmm. So I'm asking everybody that comes on the show this question. 
there's no wrong answers, but how do you think we end this foster care crisis? So that is a very loaded question. <laughs> um, and I've given a, a lot of thought. Um, initially, um, you know, because you had told me before we did this podcast that you were going to ask me that. And my initial thought was like, you know, I don't know. <laughs> like, what do I know about the foster care crisis? <laughs> I was like, I don't feel, you know, adequate to answer this. Um, and then the more I kind of thought about it, um, I have like, I guess a two part answer. I think for one, you know, just humanizing parenting and being realistic about the hardships of, and the joy of parenting, you know, uh, I think would make it seem more accessible, um, for people to want to foster. Um, so that would help you know, and the crisis in terms of having more foster parents available. Um, I know for me, um, when I was trying to get pregnant with my daughter, um, it didn't really have like a super hard time, but again, with that anxious attachment, you know, it didn't happen right away. And so I started getting really anxious about it. And my husband was like, well, we can just adopt, you know, or we can foster a kid. And I remember being like, no, we can't. Like, I'm in no shape. Like, how am I going to like, you know, help some broken kid. Like I can't do that, you know? And then now I feel, you know, and it was because I had this idea of parenthood being this like perfect, amazing way, you know? And so then therefore, because I had that image, my image of like being a foster parent was like even tenfold that, like I had to be even more amazing because these kids are like shattered and needy mm. and hard, you know? And so I didn't feel like I could do that, you know? And so, but now that I am a parent and I see that like the realities of it, you know, that it's not this like sanctified thing. I'm like, oh, I could totally be a foster parent for somebody. And I think I would be great at it, you know, because I just would care about them and embrace their heart, you know? And I, I read something recently that said, um, heart isn't bad. Heart is mm. truth, you know? And so I think, you know, just kind of knowing that, you know, being a foster parent is not going to be easy, but neither is being a parent, you know, and not looking at, at hard as being bad. It's just accepting it as the mm -hmm. truth. So I think in that way, um, that would help a lot. And then I also think um, providing better resources to um, biological families. Um, so, you know, while, um, you know, they are on hard times and their kids are being taken away or maybe even before, I don't know how it would be possible, um, but to provide like the mental health um, help that they need, um, drug rehabilitation. Um, it just seems like it's just really hard for people to have access to those things. And I think, you know, just having support for foster parents too, um, so that they do have I don't know if they do or not, but if they have like a therapist or someone that they're talking to to help them deal with like how to deal with these children, you know, because that is awkward. You have somebody that you don't know at all and all of a sudden they're in your home and your smells and your food and, you know, they feel like such an outsider. Uh, so how do you like connect with them and bring them in and feel welcomed, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Well, those were great answers. I, I feel like this is uh, an amazing perspective and this was really enlightening. Thank you for, you know, opening the, 
showing us behind the curtain and giving us more perspective of what it's like to be a foster kid, to be an adoptee and the whole bio parent journey and loving and defending your adoptive parents. And there's just so many different dynamics and how it adds to your life today, how it impacts your life today. And also um, how you're also just a normal mom and a normal person, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's definitely a journey for sure. Um, and I think just like I read something recently that talked about the concept of home. And I think that, you know, for being an adoptee and a, a foster kid is, you know, that rings really true about, you know, what is home? And um, so I just hope my story helps other people kind of think about, you know, the, the sort of peace or joy of home, you know, as you become an adult is like in the choosing, like of what your home is, you know? Um, so even if it's not, you know, I mean, how many people realistically have this like amazing childhood, whether you're adopted or not, you know, but then when you become an adult, like you get to choose how, like what your home looks like and who you want to call family, you know? I love it. I love being able to be part of your story and I love being able to see you as a mom. I'm so glad that you're a mom before I'm a mom so that I can ask you all the questions and, and have a close friend that's just close enough to my experience that, that can give me all the advice. Thank you so much for taking your time and sharing yourself Oh, thank you for asking me to be on here. It was an honor. I'm truly honored. And I, I love your friendship too. You were definitely a godsend. I think we were meant to be in each other's lives for sure. So I'll always be grateful for you. You go have a great rest of your day and I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Sounds good. All right. You too. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. Oh my gosh, you guys, was that great or what? I love Melissa's perspective and she has totally opened my eyes to realizing there is no blanket treatment. You cannot say, oh, these kids because they're foster kids or they're adoptive kids. This is how you treat all of them. They're all different. They all have different backgrounds. You need to honor their individuality and you need to get to know each individual one. You cannot say this is what's going to work for every kid and that is very powerful for me to learn as somebody that talks about this, trains on this, and is a professional in the adoption foster space. So I hope that that was enlightening for you um, and that you guys really got the sense of what it's like to be an adoptee out of foster care, at least for one person, just her perspective, right? Because there's a whole bunch of perspectives and I hope to have a whole bunch of perspectives on the show. If you guys think this podcast would be helpful for anyone you know, please share it. Go on to Apple Podcasts. Please leave a rating and a review. I would love to hear from you guys, and I would love this to reach as many people as it is helpful for. Thank you so much for sticking with me through these weeks, uh, these initial weeks, and um, I can't wait to see you next week. Talk soon. Talk soon.